WDB 860 AM Philadelphia and WPEN HD2 Burlington, Philadelphia. The following programming is sponsored by Clean and Sober Media. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of this station, its management, or Beasley Media Group. If you need immediate help, please call the National Substance Abuse and Mental Health Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. Welcome to Clean and Sober Radio, brought to you in part by Jefferson University Hospitals and Thomas Jefferson University, providing excellent clinical and compassionate care in the Philadelphia region, a proven leader in healthcare and education since 1825, and Acadia Healthcare, with locations on the East Coast. Acadia maintains a standard for excellence in the treatment of behavioral health and addiction concerns. And now, here are your hosts, Gary Hendler and Mark Sigmund. Hey, thanks everybody for joining us and welcome to the show. Clean and Sober Radio features real people with real stories about addiction to drugs and alcohol. Mark, what do you have this week in recovery news? So this one comes out of Columbia. Columbia is proposing to transfer 70 hippos that were living near Pablo Escobar's former ranch. They're descendants of four hippos, which were imported from Africa in the late 1980s by the drug lord. The so-called cocaine hippos population has boomed to 130 and spread far beyond the ranch, uh, which is 25 miles from Bogota. So what you're saying is this drug, this major drug dealer. Had hippos yes. as pets like we would have cats and dogs? He sure <clears throat> did. He, you know, he would have people over and doing deals, and he'd be like, hey, you want to come see my hippos? And he had these four hippos. But somehow it's boomed into 130, and there's no natural predators in Colombia to kill these hippos. So it'll just keep going and going and going. And they want to, they want to transfer them to, I think, Mexico, and then there's one other country. Do you want one, Gary? Um, how big are they? Are these uh, mini hippos or are they regular huge, size? Huge, huge. I would like to have one. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm thinking your backyard would be a great place. Yeah, it really would. Uh, look, we have an extra bedroom. <laughs> yeah, especially. Be yeah. All right, what else you got? So the second one comes out of Canada. Um, Canada has now issued a license to a biosciences company named Sunshine Earth Labs. The license is to produce and sell cocaine reflecting a federal health agency's policy to improve safety conditions for the country's addicts. This comes out of British Columbia. And what they're seeing is they're seeing all these problems with the opioid epidemic and some of the drugs being spiked. And it's a push towards this pretty radical harm reduction um, where they're doing a three-year study of this. And they're seeing, is this going to save lives by people having uh, uh, pure drugs rather than ones that might be spiked? All right. Are you telling me right now the Canadian government is looking to legalize cocaine in British Columbia? Is so that, is that Canada? It's Canada, but it, it's weird. Canada is a little different. Where provinces, uh, I don't know exactly how the politics work up there, but you know, there's different. <laughs> You're killing me, Gary. I'll stop right there. All right, it's it's interesting. I'd like to know what the source is, but it's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Listen. All right, we're going to take a break now. And our guest, Vernon Steed, was sentenced to life in prison for a murder that he committed as a juvenile. Life in prison. 
So how come he is in the studio with us today? When we come back, we're going to hear the rest of the story. Don't go away. This is Clean and Silver Radio. A cancer diagnosis can knock the wind out of you. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health can help. Our brand new Asplund Cancer Pavilion brings you 86,000 square feet of cancer-fighting science for truly comprehensive care. Backed by the strength of an NCI-designated cancer center. Call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health. The power to outscience cancer. Hi, I'm Billy J. Kramer, and I listen to Clean and Sober Radio. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. Hey, we're also heard on these great radio stations, WGAC in Augusta, Georgia, WHFS in Tampa, Florida, and WWE, the Big Talker 1100 in Atlanta, Georgia. Spreading around the country, Gary. We're spreading it around the country, yes. aren't we? Getting the message out. Okay, Vernon, welcome to Clean and Sober Radio, my friend. Thank you for having me. How did you get into the studio after you were given a life sentence as a juvenile? You talking about besides driving here, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you got lost. Touche. On the way. Touche. Yep. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. speaking on the Supreme Court justices, in 2010, they made a ruling. And it didn't become effective <laughs> in Pennsylvania until 2016. It's called Alabama versus Miller. Yeah. And it was dealing with scientific research. The justices wanted to know. Do children have the same risk factor as adults? And they decided that they don't. And they use a lot of scientific information to base their opinion off of. And it became law. And it trickled down, like I said, to Pennsylvania, which directly affected me. When you say risk factors, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, children do things and they don't always weigh it out. Adults do things and they weigh it out. And some of the examples and some of the things that they utilized in their research was you might have a child that might say, I can outrun a dog and actually try. Then you have adults uh, consciously say, I can't beat that dog. That dog going to bite me. Or a child might say, I can hang and jump from a second floor window onto an old mattress where an adult say, if I drop down, I'm going to break a hip or something. So they were saying that the risk factors just don't involve little minor things like that to one's individual, but it goes into criminology as well. Right. So um, uh, so, so it, a little bit of the history of the Supreme Court ruling. In the late 1990s into 2000, human rights and juvenile justice reform groups, they conducted extensive uh, research, medical research, just as Vernon was saying about the human brain doesn't uh, mature until the mid mid twenties, and he gave excellent you know examples uh, of that. And so there was a Supreme Court uh, cases, two of Miller versus Alabama, and there was a sister case, Jackson versus Hobbs. And at that point, uh, shortly after they made a decision, the Supreme Court it was unconstitutional to sentence a minor under eighteen to life without parole. And in two thousand twelve, the Eighth Amendment stated that life without parole resulted in cruel an unusual punishment, uh, and at that point it forbid the mandatory sentencing of life without parole for juvenile homicide case offenders. So, you know, if it wasn't for that Supreme Court ruling, Vernon, you wouldn't be here. Is that correct? Uh, I would continue to fight, you know, to get here, but 
that helped expedite the process, that ruling. So I like to believe, like, we never know what might turn the corner for us. But, yes, it was definitely looking like I wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, we we talk a lot. When Pennsylvania say life, they mean life. And they mean till you die in there or until, like you said, your case is overturned and released. Yeah. Pennsylvania is one of the harshest states in the union. First degree and second degree uh, can mean life. Um, So it's really uh, it's 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 really tough. Um, I want to you know. I've I've known Vernon. Let me disclose a couple of things. <clears throat> I've known Vernon for a couple months now. We sit on the parole board of a uh, a prison outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in a place called Montgomery County. For those who don't live around here, and from my from what I know about this guy, you know, we always talk, Mark, about second chances. Second chances. Most everybody deserves a second chance, and this guy got a second chance, Vernon. Uh, Steve did, and he's doing absolutely wonderful things, and it just shows you uh, second chances, man. Well, especially, you know, you hear of this, like, 17, right, and then saying, like, we're going to put you away for life. And if you look at other countries, you know, a lot of times, like, the life sentence for them, they consider, like, 30 years, right? Um, they don't they do not do it the same way as us, but holy cruel and unusual punishment. I, I always thought that... Were you tried as an adult? Yes, I was. In the state of Pennsylvania, they have a tendency, because it's a Commonwealth state, that they pick up charges and they adjudicate children as an adult. And in doing so, we're subject to the same harshest penalties as an adult. And in this case, with murder, like you said, the first and second degree, uh, if you're tried as an adult, it carries a life sentence. In 2016, uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court adjusted their rulings to go along with the United States Supreme Court. So now they're giving out sentences to juveniles accordingly to, like you said, whether or not they rehabilitated. So they say this person here doesn't set the bill of redemption. This person here is not remorseful. This person here. And they weigh all these factors. And then they come up with a decision. All right. Well, they might say, Gary. You seem contrite, so we're going to give you 30 years to life. Mark, you don't seem like you contrite. We're going to give you 45 to life. But at the end of the day, they're saying we're giving you an opportunity that you didn't have before because life meant life. That meant that you were going to be leaving the jail either in a pine box or your sentence would be commuted or you would get a new trial. And, and Vernon, in 2017, uh, they gave more discretion to the judges to make those decisions. Yes. And you know? the state of Pennsylvania did. In like state I said, of other Commonwealth states is already, yeah. you know, decided for them. Yeah. But Pennsylvania. All right. Did. Let's go back. Let's go back to where you come from. Let's go back to your childhood and tell us, tell us how you. Isn't what, that the worst? Oh, the chairs drop. <laughs> yeah. The chair drops. There's a. There you go. There you go. Uh, you got it. Is it good? Okay. Yeah, we're getting, we're getting a backup chair. chair here. We got a backup chair. That's good. So, t- <laughs> oh gosh, hey, right, let me help you. I, I told you you should lose some weight. I mean, that's what's <laughs> All right, let's keep this going. So, tell us about the environment you grew up in. I, I grew up in North Philadelphia. Yeah. And thanks, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. grew up in North Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, I grew up to parents 
who loved me as best as they can, but they were heroin addicts. Mm -hmm. And I have three sisters and a brother. And, like, growing up, I didn't understand it until I started, like, seeing the therapist. But those things are what they call now, and I understand, and the work that I do uh, is traumatic. Sure. And sometimes, like you said, we can't escape the reality of our environment as well as our parents. And I learned, like you said, most recently, we don't get to pick our parents. So I came from that type of background where, like I said, my parents used, I seen everything from them actually using to doing other things that I didn't know that affected me. It affected the way I think. Uh, I work for a nonprofit organization. I work for people with mental health and substance abuse. And I learned a lot when I was inside, like I was running groups. What's the name of the organization? I'd like you to say. Oh, I work for Hope Works Inc. Okay. Uh, we're headquartered in Norristown okay. in Montgomery County. Yep. And I learned a lot working there. Like I said, I studied like people when I was running groups inside jail. But the knowledge that I didn't learn working at my job and understanding how traumatic events can affect us is like constantly ongoing. Like it's not uh, into what trauma can affect. And sometimes environments is a catalyst. I like to think that my environment gave me what's like called distorted thinking. When you grow up in a clean and sober household, you think different. You expect it to think different. When you grew up into, like you said, an addictive type environment, you expect it actually. There's certain things that you're supposed to turn a, a blind eye to. There's a phrase that a lot of homes use, what goes on a house stays in a house. Yeah. You know, uh, it was a term that I grew up with, you know, believe half of what you see and none of what you hear. But, like I said, in a different type of household, that might not have been a phrase that was ever, you know, introduced to a child. Right. If you're just joining us now, we're talking to Vernon Steed, and he, as a juvenile, was convicted of first-degree murder charge. And thank goodness uh, he's out after doing 32 years, and we're learning right now about his childhood. It's an exceptional story uh, about an exceptional man we're we're talking to right now. Um, So when you were growing up in that environment, were your your friends – also, I assume they were in the same environment, the same socioeconomical situation. Uh, I don't know if both parents were heroin addicts for other kids, but you all grew up not privileged. Is that a fair word? Yes, but I would say it was the opposite. My friends came from middle class families because in the neighborhood which I grew up in, I chose like to live in a fantasy world. So my grandparents they came from, like, middle-class families. So I hung around and stayed around my grandparents' house, even for my education. Uh, Back then, you went to school according to what district you lived in. Well, I used my grandparents' addresses to go to better schools. Uh, Like I said, I grew up in that environment, but I was also an honor roll student. I swam for the city of Philadelphia. We had an international team called the Tiger Sharks that swam out of Temple, I swam for my middle school, which was Rhodes Middle School. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, like, my ambition as a child 
growing up the way I grew up, I wasn't a basketball player or a football player. So I said, you know what? I have academics. So I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or something. Like I had those aspirations. But I also grew up in an environment where it was okay to play with firearms and things of that nature. So on one given night, I played with a firearm. I discharged a firearm on an open street. And I was told 18 months later that me playing with that firearm, that an innocent person was hit with a projectile. It took 18 months? It took 18 months. So um, during that period of time, after did, you knew nothing? I didn't know nothing. I, I got a knock on the door at my grandmother's house, and the police said they had a warrant for my arrest. said that a, a person had died from the result of me playing with a firearm, and it resulted in me doing 32 years. But it was an uninten- unintentional act, and they still charge you with first degree. That's intentional, isn't it? It's a first degree intention. They have they have what they call in Commonwealth State, especially here in Pennsylvania, it's called transfer intent. If I discharge a firearm and I was pointing it towards you, Gary, and hit Mark, yeah. the transfer intent transfer from you to Mark. And that's what they said I suppose it done. So, Were you with other kids at that point? No, I was with an, uh, an adult. Was, was he charged? He was charged as well. Right. He'd be charged as well. Whatever yeah. happened to the adult? The adult got a life sentence as well. And the adult, this is 2023, the adult passed away inside jail at 2021. Jeez. So you were just firing it in the air. And it came down in no, some no, part of the city. No, no, I was firing it straight, straight ahead. Straight. Yeah. And they said the bullet traveled two city blocks oh my and hit gosh. somebody two city blocks. Oh my. But now I remind you, like I said, I own this. Yeah. But I'm telling you and anybody that's listening, I can't say for 100% I did it. We're talking about a North Philly street that was known. Yeah. It was a heroin corner. If anybody's familiar with the area, like 20th and York and things of that nature. So you saying that, I discharged a firearm two blocks away from somebody else. Someone else could have been shooting at somebody in that same vicinity. But because I knew I did fire a firearm, when they came and knocked on my door and said it was me, it wasn't no, yeah, I did that. Now, did I actually cause that life? I, to this day, I would never know. Did they check ballistics and all they that kind of? They didn't have no firearm to check to compare it to anything. She, so they could have just, this, I mean. This is the inequity I don't know if they railroaded him because yeah. what he looks like or where he came from. Like, if you did it, maybe the outcome would have been different, you know? So it's it, – the inequities of the, of the legal system is is really rotten. You it know? sounds fishy. I mean, it sounds like, well, you know l- – listen, uh, it's it, – <laughs> listen – you know, there are, there are good cops and there are bad cops. There are good yeah. district attorneys or bad district. There's good judges. So I don't know who, who, who got you. I think I know who the district attorney was at that point. Yes. Uh, but like I said, I'm a faithful person. So like I said, that's why I don't have no bitterness towards the system, things of that nature. That's why, like I said, I move the way I move in my life. Everything is focused and, and going direct. I can't look back. I can't be bitter. I have a lot of people that say, including you, Gary, like most people in my situation, be bitter at the system, things of that mm-hmm. nature. I'm thankful to be healthy, living, free, and doing the work that I do. Like I said, you can't do my job and not be concerned. Like your eloquent words about my situation is well respected. Yeah. Me helping people that are in a situation like me or dealing with situations like their mental health and being 
diagnosed and critiqued by other people and not having someone to just give an air to. Like I said, when I was inside, I ran men groups. So when I came home, I met the chief public defender of Montgomery County at the time. His name was Dean Bear. I just say Montgomery County is the suburbs of Philadelphia. And in meeting him, and he hearing it, like you said, about my story and the things that I was trying to do, he introduced me at the time to my executive director, uh, Sue Shannon, and mm-hmm. my, which was my director, Kim Renninger at the time. And I interviewed for my current job. And, like, it was the perfect fit. I had this saying that I like to give credibility to the work that I do. Yeah. But more importantly, someone's life was taken in 1985. So I'm still paying it forward because I, I truly believe that I'm going to see my maker. And if I did perpetrate that crime, I want everything else to be on a scale benefiting for me. Do you feel like you've paid for that crime? Like I told you, I can't actually say that I perpetrated the crime. Let, let's just say, yeah, I, I understand that. Uh, no, I'm just saying, like, I'm, that's why I'm saying, like, on a scale, if I perpetrated the crime, yeah. I don't feel as though I paid enough. Really? I don't. If I if I actually have perpetrated a crime, because you can't bring someone's loved one back. What is it like? And we're going to, you know, we're, just, we're, we're talking about the past. So we're going to get into the future. But I would like to know. Or my curiosity, and maybe some of our our audience, what it feels like when you're in prison and not knowing if you're ever going to get out. How do you keep it together? How do you have any kind of hope, uh, or do you have any dreams? Or if you have those, it just makes it more difficult to stay in there. I mean, you did 32 years. Well, let's say the first 15 was hard. Like I said, I prayed a lot. I read a lot. I educated myself. Continue. Like, that was my mechanism. Like I told you, before I went to jail, I was an honor roll student. Yeah. So when I got in jail, I found out that a lot of men didn't know how to read and write. Like, I didn't understand that. I'm a kid, and I'm looking at men much older than me that couldn't read and write. So I started teaching men how to read and write. They have a course inside jail called the ABE course where you can help teach. Yeah. So I started with that. Then they had a group come in, which was <coughs> the Quakers, and they started coming in, and they taught a group called Alternative Volunteers. So I took that, and then I became a mentor where I started training and facilitating that. So when you literally say that I transitioned my academics into a criminal environment, I can say, like, there's other people like me that do it, but that was my mechanism. My education and my religion is what got me through jail. Do you think that because you took a negative and made a positive of it in jail was one of the reasons why the parole board uh, agreed to? Oh, without a doubt. Like I said, I've seen them. I've seen the parole board January of 2017. I was home March of 2018. Fast. Yeah. Well, I apologize. January 2018, and I was home March of 2018. Yeah. So in a matter of two months, they made a, a, a sound decision, I like to think, yeah. in yeah. releasing me. Absolutely. Hey, we're going to take another break now. When we come back, we're going to continue uh, talking with Vernon Steed, and a, a remarkable person, man. I don't think I could have held it together. I know I couldn't have. And the good that you did inside and outside 
is beautiful. We'll be right back. This is Clean and Sober Radio. Diversity in the workplace is more than gender, ethnicity, and even age. It also means people in recovery. The Higher Calling Foundation works to end the stigma of substance use disorders in the workplace by helping those in recovery find jobs, get career counseling, and more. All things insurance doesn't cover, and all at no cost and encouraging businesses to hire employees in recovery. Because with the great resignation, there are jobs to be filled, and employees in recovery are an untapped demographic. It's mutually beneficial, and it's simply good business. Started by employment attorney in recovery, Kevin Heyer, the Higher Calling Foundation believes everyone deserves a second chance and works to make that happen. And now, diversity in the workplace demands it. Visit HigherCalling.org, that's H-Y-E-R Calling.org, and find out how we can help you. Hi, this is Randy the Blade Lurch. I listen to Clean and Sober Radio. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. If you're just joining us now, we're talking to a, uh, uh, a, a great guy, Vernon Steed, who uh, as a juvenile was convicted of first-degree murder, and he's out. And, it, and it's beautiful. And if you want to give a call in and talk to Vernon about anything, as, as you just heard, our number is 1-888-728-9941. And if you're listening and you want to watch us right now do the show, go on Facebook to our page, Clean and Sober Radio, and you can watch us do the show uh, like uh, some of these folks. Uh, uh, Sue Garber Pisano, Frank DeSantis, Kathy Wolf Collin, <clears throat> Uh, Stacy Passetti, Judge Christopher Maddox, the greatest. Um, yes, it was good. I had dinner with the judge last nice. night. Nice. That was nice. See, that's that's recovery. That's what you get, stuff like that yes. in recovery. You can sit down and have dinner with a judge instead of standing in front of him. Uh, Cliff uh, Coblin is watching. Ted Klotz. Dennis Hannon is watching. Eddie Kilgore is watching. Yo, Eddie. What do you got there? We got former Philly Randy Lurch. Hello, oh, Randy yeah. Lurch. And, Pitcher for the Phillies. And your wife is watching. And uh, Mark Willig, our good buddy, is watching. Steve Ruger. Um, I think I got everybody here. I have Laura's story. Happy Friday, guys. I'm asking you guys to pray for my sister. She has a bone infection, and I'm asking for prayers for my sister. Of course, we're sending them out to you. Okay, let's get back to the show. Um, all right, I'm going to ask you one more question about the past, and then I'm not going to harp on it anymore. You see, Mark and I, Vernon, have this um, healthy uh, curiosity about prisons, okay? And fear. And fear. And um, We've been to the police station, well, but we, we just have never been. Well, that's well you, he ha- you haven't, but that's I have. They have the fear. Yeah. It's, yeah. When you walked out of that, which, where, where were you last? I came home from uh, SCI Huntington. Okay, you're in Huntington, Pennsylvania. Uh, what was it like when you walked out of that prison after 32 years? Uh, a fast walk. <laughs> you were like, I'm out. Did I'm you out, turn I'm around out. and look back and say, am I really out of here? No. I actually said to my wife, come on, get me off these grounds before they change their mind. Oh, really? That's exactly what I said. And the snow was coming down, and my wife was coming to see me every week. For the most part, while I was incarcerated, after I met her and married her, right? Mm-hmm. So you married her. Did you meet her 
before you went in? No, I met her while I was in. Gotcha. Yeah. And while she was coming to see me, that traffic from where we lived at to Huntington was about an hour and a half drive. I can actually tell you that it took us five hours to get home that day because we got lost. Like literally, you're like, like, the excitement, you're like crazy. The excitement, the snow was coming down. We was missing turns left and right, and you know, like I said, we wasn't in no rush nowhere, you know. But it was still a five-hour drive. But it was a free, sightful five hours. The first night in in a bed, the first night oh. going to the bathroom when you wanted to, when you br- when you wanted to brush your teeth, because in prison, everything you had to pretty much ask, right? Everything almost. I'm talking about. Walking into a house, closing the door again was like the acclimation was just so surreal. Sitting down on a couch, you don't know how much you miss sitting on a soft couch until you can sit on one in front of, like you're talking about, like a 65-inch screen TV and watch your favorite sports team. Well, let me ask you something about that. You lost a lot of years of technology I mean, when you went in, they were they had beepers. I, I think that's what it was, right? Yes. How did you – I guess you knew about the new technology, well, the, but how did you – The beautiful thing was, yeah. like I tell you, the state of Pennsylvania moved fast after the 2016 whole court decision. They started bringing people in, and we started having computer classes. But remember, I told you, I continue to educate myself. So even before 2016, I already had got certificates and degrees in PowerPoint, Excel, Access, okay. Word. Like, I was computer literate. Like, so at that time, I think we was doing, like, Microsoft 7. So, I like, I had that. Then we transitioned to Microsoft 10 before I came home. So, like, I was typing 30 words, you know, or as they call them, 30 characters. Like, I was doing all that prior to coming home. So... The the biggest transition for me was doing all that on a a screen phone. You know, as you get older, your eyes are the first thing that go, you know. I see both of y'all wear glasses. <laughs> yes. So, I've been wearing them since I was ten. So. <laughs> so I didn't start wearing glasses, reading glasses until I was forty. So looking at those little cell phone screens yeah. and touch oh, yeah. screens and yeah. things like that, that was a little bit more difficult than the computers but technology like i still don't do the social media and things of that nature yeah but yeah technology came a little easy so you come out of this horrible environment how did you adjust did you go into did you get therapy when i mean how do you adjust to something like that well like i said i had a good support like i can't say enough about my wife and children when i came home that was there mm-hmm. uh i tell anyone that did a long extensive time don't Rush out. You've been doing, like, a stability-type life. Come home and relax. I took the first six months of my incarceration just to absorb it all in. Like, I literally went on trips with my wife and kids and things of that nature. And I see some people in the recidivism rate where they leave jail and they think that they got to come home and get right back into, like, working and stuff like that. was the stability that they had in jail. And they forget to the essence of being free. Sometimes, like, I drive now, and I'm like, it's dark time. I'm not inside of a prison wall. Like, and I started really getting sympathetic to the people that I left behind that they're in a cell. And it gets dark. It's time to go in. Yeah. I can drive. Yeah. So, we, we take so much for granted, Mark. Um, as I said, j- just 
If you felt like you want to brush your teeth, you want certain medical care, everything we do, we take for granted until you have that experience. And then I don't think you take it for granted anymore. No, the like it's, it's, it's sad. It's literally sad that sometimes it takes sitting people down for people to start appreciating. I have a saying I like to say, do things on your own volition and not when you force. And what I mean by that, and I employ that to like my support groups. Like I said, I run support groups. I run a group inside MCCF. Besides sitting on a board, I run a group in Pottstown. Mm-hmm. And what I try to tell people by that is, I don't know, Mark, but I'm going to just use you. Let's say Mark smokes cigarettes. <coughs> Keep suggesting to Mark, stop smoking, stop smoking. He won't do it on his own volition. Mark get incarcerated where they don't sell cigarettes. Now you're forced to stop and you stop. But what happens normally when people force you to stop, as soon as you get free, mm-hmm. you're smoking a pack a day now because you're trying to make up for all those years that you didn't smoke cigarettes. So that's why I try to tell people, do things in life <coughs> at your own free volition that's versus somebody forcing you. It's good advice. So you get out, you took a breather, six months, whatever, and then you start looking for work. Was uh, it hard? What, no. Even with your, even with your felony... It was still not hard to get a job? Well, my first job, I was doing concrete. And okay. I went in, and a guy, it wasn't a second chance job. But I went in, and I don't like to use the word I sold myself, but I was honest. I was yeah. like, listen, this happened in 1985. And I don't know if I did it or not, but I owned it. I did 32 years. And he was like, I want to give you a second chance. He said, I only have one question. Can you always communicate with me if you can't make it to work? I said, man, not make it to work. I said, I love working. And then, like I said, I had that job for a couple of months until I have the current job I have now that I love. Like that job was sustaining, paying bills, taking care of my family. This job does the same thing, but I love getting up in the morning doing the work. Why don't you tell everybody what you're doing now? Okay. And who you're doing it for. Besides yourself. When you say, who am I doing it for? The, co- the organization. All right. Like I said, I work for Hope Works Inc. We're headquartered in Norristown, and we specialize in working with people with uh, serious mental illnesses and co-occurring disorders. We do everything from, we have a thing called Community Works, where people that live off the street can come into our offices, sit down, relax, get a meal, if need be, we were doing showers and things at one time. They could wash clothes there. Then we have other tentacles. We have, like, family service. I work for the tentacle of advocacy work. I advocate on behalf of the people, and I help them advocate for themselves. So that's what I specialize in, and I bring the forensic advocate part of it where I didn't been in jail, and I can understand that. Uh, like I said, I run a support group in Pottstown, but I also run a group called FYI, and it don't stand for what you think it stands for. It stands for find yourself inside. Because, like I try to compel the people, what goes on inside trickulates on outside. I like to know that when you're coming home, that my family could feel safe if you are a next-door neighbor. And a lot of that starts with the curriculum that I teach. And like I said, we deal with anger management. We deal with distorted thinking. We have yoga, uh, I can't even name all 14 of them right now, but it's 14 modules that I'm telling you that I believe in. I believe that if a human being does these things, 
he gives him or herself a second chance at life. So I implore people. I also sit on a steering, stepping up and steering committee for Montgomery County where we discuss things like me and you talked about as far as helping people with mental health in the community, Gary. Yes. yes. Uh, different ways. My, my my company that I work for, we're trying to start a respite in the county, like, you know, for people that might want to come and need a break from their everyday home life or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a place to go. Um, so is, is, is the majority of the people, the folks that you deal with, help with, is it a, is it, it's not all reentry out of no, prison. No, majority of it's not. Majority of it's not. Reentry is the smallest tentacle of hope work. Okay. It's the smallest. Like I said, it's, 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 it's taken a step up, like you said, since I came on board and we work in things of that nature. Yeah. But our sole purpose is, like you said, to work with the mental health community and the co-occurring disorder. Because, like you said, a lot of people that have substance abuse issues suffer from some kind of trauma. Oh, we know that, don't we? Suffer from some kind of trauma. So I like to implore people, like, let's not attack the substance issue without going to the root of the problem. If we can get to the root of the problem, we can stop the substance problem. You know what I mean? There's scientific facts that people then went in remission and things of that nature when it comes to substance. But you can't deal with that trauma unless you actually deal with it. It's not going to go nowhere. Yeah. And, Mark, you deal with that. Mark's a therapist. You deal with it. We talk about trauma all the time. Oh, my gosh. It is it is so prevalent with, with substance abuse, right? I mean, it's, it's you know, growing up in a traumatic household, I mean, it, it affects the way your brain develops, the whole bit. And there is this big debate. It's like, does somebody need to be clean first to get to that trauma, or do you want to get the trauma first? And I've seen it go both ways. I've seen it where sometimes... Um, if somebody isn't clean, sometimes it can get worse, but, um, other times it's, it seems like I've had some miracle happen. So, so you, know? you being a therapist, you're familiar with the ACEs then. Oh yeah. So yeah. when they first did the ACEs on me, they said my score was off the chart. Like mm-hmm. you said, coming from the traumatic experiences I yeah. came from. What, what, tell everybody what ACEs is. Yeah. It's basically a trauma technique, you know, where, where basically, but you can explain it better than me. It's been a while. <laughs> I, I, listen, I don't even know what it is. Let me try to explain yeah. it. No, come on. All right, yeah. let's move on then, okay? Yeah. Let's move on then, okay? Uh, uh, okay, well, I'll keep going, you know. <laughs> if nobody can explain, we all know what it is, but we well, can't it's explain a scoring. it. It's a scoring chart. It's a scoring chart, It's a scoring yes. chart that they give to people, and it rates, like you said, the type of trauma and experiences that a child might have went through. It's, it's definitely affecting child's psychological and emotional brains and how that affect them as adults. So does it actually give an indication of how well you can, you will be able to do after you go through treatment? Is that what it is? I mean, is there some kind of rating that says this guy is a good, a good risk? This guy is, is it do any of that? I wouldn't say that it does a risk assessment. It does more of what you were involved in what you were uh, open to or subjected to as a child. And now the therapist has a starting point okay. where to go. Like that's okay. where a child psychologist would give them the ACEs test and they say, okay, Gary suffered from physical, mental, sexual trauma. Right. And now I sit here and I would say, all right, 
now I know what I have to attack without asking you to dwell into it as much. Right. Because you just filled out a form. Right. You know, sometimes we don't like to sit on that couch. Right. Or in that chair and open <laughs> up. But that, that, that form gives the therapist a starting point. Right. If you're just joining us now, we're talking to Vernon Steed, um, who was uh, convicted as a juvenile, did 32 years, did great things while he was incarcerated and is doing even better things now that he is uh, a free man. And that's what our conversation is. And it just shows second chances are so, so important. Absolutely. And, and you know, it must feel so good to do this work now, to, to help other people now, having gone through the experience and being able to share that. Oh, without a doubt, like I said, paying it forward. Like, you can't see the smiles all the time uh-huh. on the people that we service and help, but it's there. You know what I mean? Like, I learned that everybody don't show emotions the same. But I know that when I help somebody and I help someone's family, the gratitude that they get trickles down to me so I can sit back and say, all right. It's like feeling productive. Like, you don't want to go to work and not feel productive. I feel productive. Satisfied. Satisfied. Yeah, satisfied. I still, I still have a lot of growth. I still have a lot of learning. Like I said, I seen something yesterday that said that in this society now, with the Internet and all the technology, the knowledge is out there. But it implores lived experience to give you the wisdom. You need the wisdom the lived experience to know how to apply that knowledge. And you you ask some kids today, they have the knowledge, but they don't have the experience or the wisdom to know how to apply that. Right. That is that is a that is a, a problem. Yeah, how did your siblings end up um were they supportive in things while you my, my siblings, like I said, they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. Uh I have an older sister and everybody else is younger than me. So like when I say that they were supportive, they were supportive as best as they could. You have to remember, we all come from the same background, same parents. Mm-hmm. So while I was unfortunately incarcerated, they still had to endure what I was enduring as a child. They still had to, you know, deal with the parents that were still using. Were your parents involved at all in your incarceration? No. No. Are they still alive? No. Yeah, that's... uh. One eight 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 seven two eight nine nine four one. Give us a call. Um, this is a great opportunity to speak to somebody who has been in it. He's, uh, uh, you know, when they say walk the walk, not just talk the talk. He walks the walk, and it's so helpful because you get that rapport. You know, you get that rapport. Like I'm, I'm sure people wouldn't really want to work with you the same if they didn't know that you've been through it, right? Um, That's the credibility that I spoke about, yeah. like. When I sit and, like, me and Gary sit on, like I said, uh, Montgomery County Prison Board. So when I go inside, our responsibility is to make sure that the facility is adequately ran for the inmates as well as Mm -hmm. the staff. So now when I come in and I'm talking to the inmates and I'm letting them know, like, listen, I'm here on behest of you. If you have any complaints or any, you know, things that you would like to talk about, I'm here so I can take it to the people that are going to make a di- difference. And I let them know, like, I've been where you were at. I wasn't ever in that county jail, but 
I done been in Philadelphia County Jail, and I done been upstate in multiple institutions. And I tell them, I say, talk to me because I'm going to take your complaint to those that, you know, you want to actually hear your complaint. And then I tell the staff the same thing. Like, if you're having a problem and things of that nature, we're there to make the facility a better place. Exactly right. If you need help now, uh, call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. They provide an incredibly great service. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to hear more of Vernon Steed's incredible story. So don't go away. This is Clean and Sober Radio. A cancer diagnosis can knock the wind out of you. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health can help. Our brand new Asplund Cancer Pavilion brings you 86,000 square feet of cancer-fighting science for truly comprehensive care. Backed by the strength of an NCI-designated cancer center. Call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. The Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Abington Jefferson Health. The power to outscience cancer. Hey, this is Mark Stein from the classic rock band Vanilla Fudge, and you're listening to station WWDB. 888-728-9941. This is Clean and Sober Radio. It certainly is. Uh, Again, if you want to watch us instead of just listening around the country, go to uh, Facebook, and our, our page is Clean and Sober Radio. You can watch us do the show. It's it's amazing. Just like these great folks, Dustin Green, Marjorie Hendler, my fabulous wife, uh, Ken McGarity Jr., um, C. Ruger. Uh, did you get Kelly Irwin Burchette? Did you get them? I uh, did not. No one's, uh, no one's wife? Yes. Yeah. What a great show that was. Last week was fabulous. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Are you going to? Badia Steed? Badia. Badia Steed. You know that person? My wife. There you go. All right. Badia, you got a great husband. Let me just say that. Uh, Or, oh, oh, man. Mark. Pronounce that. Are you putting it? Okay. Or Busrakhem is watching. Okay, that was good. And I got a big one right here. Go ahead. I have William Atchison, my 31 years Soberversary. Grateful today. Hey. Congratulations, bro. Freaking awesome. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Look, that's what it's about. It's about, you know, you know, Vernon, we say on here, you know, you get clean, you get sober, you start thinking correct thoughts, and then you give back like you definitely are doing. Is I told giving you back. that modular distorted thinking, like, it's not a bad thing. It's just some way people was raised, you know. Yeah. If you're raised in a house where you're taught to lie, cuss, and things of that nature, that's what you implore oh, yeah. to people that you socialize with. So it's just retooling. Someone just letting you know. It's like one of the things I say to guys in my group, especially the reentrants. You got a, a wife, a beautiful wife. Okay? Yes. You go to jail. Yes. Your wife is supporting you. She comes to see you all the time. She's sacrificing. Right. You come home. You have a bunch of women out here dressing half-dressed. You cheat on your wife. She can't do anything physically to you. She's not going to jeopardize her freedom in that. So she calls the parole man up and says, 
fabricate a story. Gary did this and that. Now you're back in jail. You're sitting there now saying, I'm going to hurt her. She got me locked up, this and this and that. For every action, there's a reaction. You're distorted thinking that you could break that woman's heart after her sacrificing her love and then come home and she wasn't going to do something to you. So I would implore to you. I say, now you already broke her heart. She did what she could, you know, to let you know that it hurt. And now you're talking about going home and doing physical harm to her just so you can be back in here. Who's thinking, you know, rational now, you or her? Because you could apologize, go home and say, you know, I messed up. I apologize. You can just leave the situation alone. But to escalate the situation anymore, you still having distorted thinking. You're still thinking with the way you act and react is the correct way. Yeah. That's not a law abiding system. You know, I've told, I, I tell this to a lot of people, and I even use it myself. Whatever you're going to do, you must think about the outcome. What's, what, whatever you're doing, what is the, how do you want the outcome to look? And if you can control your impulses and, and think about the implications of your actions and be honest with yourself, you can avoid a lot of problems, just like you're saying. Especially if you think about everybody that it involves. A lot of times, again, it goes back to what the United States Supreme Court said about risk factor. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that commit crimes only see how it affects them. Oh, I, I, if I get caught, I can do the time. Yeah. But you don't think about your loved ones that's missing you, worrying about whether you're safe, like Mark said, mm-hmm. somebody you know doing something to you in there, uh, those trips where they got to come see you early in the morning and things. That, you don't never take those things in consideration. So... Like you said, again, I employ somebody. Think before you do anything. Think about the action, the reaction, and the consequences. Yeah. Play the tape, right? Play the tape fully to the end. Fully forward, right? Yeah. Um, You know, we have so many people that are are watching this show right now. I got to get to some of them. And, again, the people that I'm talking about here, they're watching us on Facebook at our page, Clean and Sober Radio. Jane Shapiro, inspiring words of wisdom from Vernon. Uh, Ted Klotz, prison reform is needed. More programs needed. William Atchison is watching. Ken Chandler. Uh, Did you you talk about William Atchison? Yes, about the 31 years sober. Yeah, that's that's just freaking great. Yeah, that's Karen Stoger. Jan Olaf. Adderborn. Can't everybody's name be like Bill Smith? I know, yeah. Or, or, or Jane, Jane yeah. Doe. We haven't seen Monica on here lately. No, we haven't seen Monica. <laughs> Please, yeah. yeah. We're not even going We're not going to butcher that. Um, okay, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Vernon Steed, uh, a very, uh, I'm not going to say lucky guy, but uh, you make your own luck, don't you? Well, like I said, I was thinking about sitting out. I told my wife a long time ago, I just don't have the time doing so much that I'm doing that I wanted to write a book, and I said the title would be uh, Just Because You Made a Bad Choice, It Doesn't Have to Define You because I don't believe mistakes. Mistakes are like falling and slipping, but we as human beings, we make choices. So (coughs) one bad choice doesn't have to define you, and that's what I'm trying to say. Every day that I walk and do the work that I'm doing is that define me by what the work I'm doing and where I'm going in my life not where I came from. Right. Mm. And a lot of people have a lot of difficulty, you know, understanding that, you know, and we see it all the time. 
when, when, when we as, as addicts, recovering addicts, we want to get jobs, we want to yeah. get employment, uh, uh, housing, they're looking at what, ha- what we did, not who we are and where we're going. Exactly. Yeah, I'm always so amazed, like working with clients when you see, you know, somebody in active addiction compared to not, you know, you see this, this change, this huge change, and it's quick, you know, they even look different. Um, oh, yeah. You know, you get a lot of people that were totally dishonest in the addiction, but then they come out of it and, and they're, they're relatively honest, you know, um, it's amazing stuff. I like to say this, Mark, Dan's do your therapist. <laughs> There's nothing wrong. I need the people that's listening to know there's nothing wrong with seeing a therapist. I see a therapist. I like to even shout out my therapist. You know what I mean? I, I see a therapist, Gus Adams, and he helped me with my acclimation. He helped me, like you said, clear my head with some things between me and my children. You know, I would have never thought that I needed to see a therapist, but there's nothing wrong with admitting seeing a therapist. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, that's a good point we don't bring up here enough. It is not a weakness to see a therapist. It's a strength for sure. I like to think so. Yeah. And just being able to talk things out. And uh, a lot of times the answers are within us, you know, and, and when you start talking to a therapist, we can reflect back to within the client. Yeah, you know? because he's not giving you the answer. He's just yeah. helping you, like you said, see through it, work through it, things of that <laughs> mm-hmm. nature. It's amazing. Very important. You know, um, two or three. I'm getting the signal. You're getting the signal. <clears throat> we're almost at the end, Vernon. We're, we're cool. Uh, he was again. talking about how much this show flies, yeah, and it, yeah, it really yeah. does. Hey, listen, you know, uh, let's just, like, sort of talk about, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having you know, me. Thanks. Not thanks for going all through you, what you've done. Thanks for what you're doing and who you are and, and, and setting examples. Uh, you know, you know when, when Vernon and I are in the prison and we, we talk to the inmates, as he said, well, you know, the credibility that he has when he's talking yeah. to him is way more than the credibility I have. And, you know, uh, give him back. I don't know what else to say. It's just, uh, you know, I don't want to keep, you know. No, that's fine. You know, is, what, is what I say. As long as they open the door when it's time for me to leave. Well, you know, I always say, <laughs> no, Vernon, you know what? I didn't go through you, dude. But when we're done our board meetings, I always say to the warden, is it okay if I leave? <laughs> Listen. I, that's all I say. People ask me that question all the time. Like, after doing so much time, how do you feel about going back inside of jail? Because sometimes I go on SCI Phoenix and yeah. run a group as well. Yeah. And they be like, I was like, as long as they open the door and let me out, I'm all right <laughs> with it. Now, the time that they don't open the door, then I got issues. As long as they open the door, I'm fine with going in and going out. Yeah, exactly. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, we, uh, we'd love for you to come back whenever. I hope this was a good experience for us because I think our audience and, and Mark and I really learned a lot Enjoyed from you. having you. you. You know, well, so remember, you if, me. if you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, help is available. Please call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. For Clean and Sober Radio, I'm Gary Hendler. I'm Mark Sigmund. Thanks for listening. And to learn more about uh, this broadcast, please join us on our mission at cleanandsoberbroadcasting.com. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>